Welcome back to the UNE Center for Rural Criminology podcast, Rural Crime. Um, this week, we're really, really fortunate to have Jack Beetson with us. Jack is the executive director of the Literacy for Life Foundation. He's a Yemba man who's been working in indigenous education for many, many years. Jack's work in the area has been recognized internationally. He's actually received a United Nations Unsung Hero Award, a Cuba Award, and, and many, many other honors. In today's conversation, Jack talks about literacy in relations to its wider uh, social implications, particularly around empowerment um, and opportunity in Indigenous communities. We're also fortunate to have Jenny Wise with us, who's actually done some research in the area as it relates to uh, crime uh, and the implications that not being able to read and write can have on one's life, and particularly uh, in terms of interactions with the criminal justice system. And it was so encouraging to hear someone with so much uh, passion and vigor uh, uh, to uh, make improvements in the lives of many people. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed, uh, along with Jenny Wise, talking to Jack. Um, So without further ado, let's get into it. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself um, um, before we proceed to chat a little bit about the campaign and other things that you're working on? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm Jack Bateson. I'm a, originally a Nyingba man from Brewarana in the far northwest of New South Wales. Um, I moved to Sydney uh, when I was 15 um, after a pretty severe bout of police brutality um, where people thought it might have been better if I left town. Um, rather than stay there and uh, I was expelled from school at 13 and um, and I went back to college to an Aboriginal college in Sydney when I was 28 and uh, yeah and here I am I guess um, <laughs> all those years later um, and you know pretty, pretty much focused on obviously the adult literacy um, issues within our community um, but I also do other stuff to, to with organisations that might be experiencing a few issues around governance and stuff like that, just to support them um, through their problems as well. Right on. Could you tell me a little bit now about the foundation and the campaign in particular that's focused on adult literacy? Yeah, look, I think it's very important work. The campaign model itself is called Yossi Cueto, um, which is a Cuban um, adult literacy campaign model. Um, acknowledged by the UN as the, the best literacy campaign model in the world. There's been a lot of literacy campaigns, um, but but the literacy campaign model from Cuba is the best one. Um, over 12 million people globally have become literate using it. And the whole idea of it is that local people that can read and write teach those that can't. So, mm. so we train local facilitators to be in the classroom to work with their own people to to teach them to read and write. And at the end of the day, people always say, what makes the model work? That's what makes it work because it's local people working with local people. So can you talk about a little bit uh, the name of the campaign itself, but also maybe a little bit about how it works in practice and and how you guys have have unrolled it? Yeah, we've, we've... Everywhere we've gone, it's just gone from one pilot to another, and we're sort of a bit over it being a pilot. It's, we've been doing it now for 10 years. The results of the campaign in terms of graduates, we graduate people at a rate of 67% on average, regardless of where we are, and take another private providers who come in at level one on the Australian Core Skills Framework, they're graduating people at a rate of 5 or 10%. 
The reason is not that they're doing something wrong. The reason is that most people are below level one. Mm. So that there's something that we fall into this policy vacuum in terms of being funded because the work we're doing is non-accredited training and it doesn't fit into that framework. So we're, we're pre the framework. And so if people join at level one of the uh, AQSF, then, then they're not, they're going to drop out because it's just too hard. So we, we feel yeah. that gap. Um, so just, sorry, just to pause you there. So because you do that, because you've noticed that gap in that area that you're focusing on, that prohibits you from accessing certain levels of, of funding? Yeah, it does, because then everybody says, well, we can't fund it because it doesn't fit within our policy framework, right? Yeah. So everybody yeah. avoids the issue that way. Yet a recent um, federal government inquiry into literacy and numeracy, adult literacy and numeracy, in fact, recommendation 15 of that inquiry recommended that the Literacy for Life Foundation be fully funded by the federal government by March next year. So okay. clearly that inquiry, which was, uh, you know, every different political party represented on that inquiry, um, came to that conclusion that, that we should be funded because of the results we're getting. So literacy is extremely important in people's lives. Yeah. What's also important is that people, when we come and work with the community, when we leave, the community still has people there that can sustain the work because they've been trained in the delivery of the model. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that reminds me of a crime prevention model um, I think out of Canada called safe growth, but that's that's their primary uh, goal as well, is that when they leave, uh, that model doesn't cease or stop or the training doesn't stop, that people have been left with the tools and techniques to be able to uh, implement further and share that information further. Um, for people listening, um, if they want to find out more information about this, this, this program and this campaign, where can they do so? Yeah, just um, the website is lflf.org.au. Um, if people visit that website, they can. Um, there's there's lots of information on there about what we do, the campaigns, what our graduation rates hold. There's statistical information. There's stories on there. Um, there was a a documentary made a few years ago called "In My Own Words." Um, okay. That you know, I think is online permanently now. At some point, I'm not too sure where, but I think it is. So, yeah. Perfect. And can you explain a little bit more about why literacy? Why is it so important? It's absolutely critically important because literacy affects everything um, right across the board. It affects opportunities and not opportunities if you can't read and write. They're actually burdens because you, you, you actually don't recognise the opportunities. So, so that's one thing. I think in relation to health, what, what you have, if you've got 70% of adults 15 years and older, 70% um, of those people in your community have low English literacy, there's a lot of people in that community then administering medications to babies, to themselves or to elders um, that are committing what the doctor told them in terms of medicating somebody to memory because mm. they can't read what's on the box. They can't read what's on the Panadol box. That's extremely difficult, and it, and it's a it's a tragic situation. If that was the case for the whole of Australia, it would be considered a national disaster. But yeah. what we found during our work is that in all the communities that we've been into, people's health has improved. 
people have engaged less with the criminal justice system. People have been incarcerated uh, at a lesser rate. Um, people have managed to be able to get a licence where they couldn't previously. And some people have gone on to employment. Um, and quite often you hear people saying, well, yeah, particularly government, they link training, education and training to an employment outcome. Is, mm -hmm. And yeah. my issue with that is where did our right to learn, because we want to learn, go, where did that, where did that fall off the table? Because employment's one thing, but, but you can contribute in so many other ways to society yeah. if you can just read and write at the basic level. Mm. You can certainly improve your own health. You can, you know, we've had anecdotal evidence of how, you know, so many people that have joined the campaign have reduced their substance abuse or alcohol consumption. Mm. All of that stuff has happened. We've never talked to them about that. We've never advised them that that might be a journey they take. Yeah. Basically, because they learned to read and write, they made better decisions. Yeah, it's a... It's an empowerment uh, uh, model, it sounds. Um, can you speak about this? This is heavily focused on uh, Indigenous communities in Australia. Can you speak about that that element of, of the literacy campaign? Um, I know you mentioned some statistics there briefly, but, but can you talk about the significance of the problem and then maybe how this is a, a particularly culturally um, um, informed approach? Yeah, yeah it is. Um, well, we know that at a bare minimum, 40% of people 15 years and older in our communities have low English literacy. In reality, that's far more likely to be 70% to 95%, depending on where you are at the time. So the more remote you go, in places yeah. like Northern Territory, the Kimberley or wherever, that yeah. rate increased significantly in that. Um, so, so that's that's the issue you're confronted with um, around that. What was the second part of the question again? Um, uh, about the kind of cultural elements that are yes. ingrained in this program to to tap into that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what's critical in, in in this campaign model is that the community takes ownership of the campaign. Yeah. So the, the the first part of the campaign is three months of socialisation and mobilisation. Now that includes a questionnaire. We don't do the questionnaire, we train local people from each family group to go and talk to their own family about literacy and whether it's a good idea and even ask the question, do you think it'd be good to have a literacy campaign in your community? Yeah. Every community has said to us, you're the first people to actually ask if we wanted something. Everyone's yeah. coming on telling us how you good need the program this. is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but we don't do that. And yeah. we don't ask the question. We train local people to do that. So they get trained, they get paid while they're training, they get paid to do the survey, and we pay them when they come and work on the literacy itself. So we do three months of that, and the whole idea of doing that is getting people, getting each community to take ownership of the campaign. So we say to them, where do you think we should hold the classes? Hmm. You know, what days do you think we should hold the classes on? Yeah. And astonishingly... Every community has said, can we do, instead of doing one hour a day, can we do two hours, three days a week? Mm. Because we have to attend sorry business on Thursdays and Fridays. Yeah. Now, if any other sector of our community had to factor sorry business into their learning, 
again, we would be identifying that as a national crisis. Yeah. That's what we would be doing. And that's the sad part about it is that people have had to factor into their learning that yeah. they're going to be attending funerals, you know, either up the river from where they are or down yeah. the river or where they are. And that's with such regularity. Yeah, it happens yeah. with such regularity. And, you know, yeah. it's just like Canyon. You know, I'm not mm. sure what it is now, but, you know, not too long ago, you know, in the last five years, the average life expectancy of the average man was 38. So it's wow. little wonder people are attending funerals every Thursday and Friday. So yeah. that, that being factored in tells us something quite significant about the issue. So something as basic as literacy can actually improve that statistic. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the practicalities of the program, but if I understand it correctly, um, someone goes in and do they deliver the campaign in the first instance or the program, sorry, or do they identify particular leaders and individuals that they train that then deliver that program to the community? Yeah, the first thing we do is get a community group together to advise okay. us every step of the way. So yeah. in terms of how many days, where you hold it, they tell us, give us some tips about people that can read and write that maybe we should talk to about applying for the job. So we advertise every job. Yeah. They usually don't go on the interview panel because they're, you know, everybody's related one way or another in community. Yeah. So yeah. We, we'll, we'll normally do that. But then we train those people in the method. So they become facilitators in the classroom, which is a DVD um, where actors are acting out, you know, in in the literacy campaign in, in on the DVD and we're yep. training people to do it. Now, in Santa Teresa, one of the guys that was teaching literacy, English literacy, I actually said to him, I said, brother, how many languages do you speak before English? And yeah. he said nine. nine I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah. Nine languages before, and he was one of the best facilitators we ever had. Yeah. Now, there's somebody that doesn't dream in English, they don't think yeah. in English, their yeah. dogs don't understand English. Yeah. Here he is teaching English yeah. to his own mob. So when I said earlier on, it's the local mob that make it work. Yeah. Because that's why people will come, because they're related to them. They say, oh, I've got to go because my old cousin's there. And they got no shame, you know, yeah. because it's their own people. It's not that's coming good. in and passing judgment on yeah, that's actually an interesting point you bring up. Um, you find if it was outsiders kind of thrusting something upon that that element of shame discourages participation, you find that cultural sensitivity and, and knowledge and that kind of everyone's in the same boat sort of thing engenders a sort of uh, more participation. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and the fact that the, not just the, the staff, but the students are part of the co-design of what we do. So... We've got a set curriculum in terms of the literacy itself. So yeah. there's three phases. The first phase is the socialisation, mobilisation of the community. And that's yeah. all of the service and the agencies as well within the community. So we're getting everybody mobilised around the idea. Then you have the classes. And then after the classes, you have post-literacy. So that's sort of the use it or lose it phase. Yeah, And that's very much where the students design their own journey in that last 12 weeks of post-literacy. So they say, well, okay, what, what do you want to do that will cause you to use your literacy? Now, that'll go from anything from learning a bit about computers and yeah. setting up an email for the first time in their life to doing mm -hmm. first aid 
And it becomes really, it becomes really practical because what, what people think about is what can help our community? Yeah. What, what would actually help? And that's where first aid comes into it, you know. Um, if they can use a computer, they can go and share that knowledge with other people in their own household, you know. So yeah. you've got all this stuff going on that that they've learned to read and write and now they're able to support, you know, their families with a whole lot of stuff that they couldn't before. Yeah, 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 share the knowledge. Um, yeah. Going back to the problem itself, you mentioned um, literacy rates were quite low. Do you find there's a, a, a massive generational gap? I guess what I'm asking is, is it getting better amongst young Indigenous uh, um, people? or And is there quite a large gap with their parents and their grandparents? No, sadly, it's, it, um, some of the older people can read better than the younger people. And I think that's yeah. a tragedy of it all. Um, here we are living in a first world country. And yeah. quite a few people come to us. We have a... We, we have a protocol with the schools that if there are kids that are 15 and up, um, then because in, in the developing world or the UN definition is you're yeah. an adult at 15. So in the developing world or third world countries, that's when you're an adult. Those, we, we will take them, but we always say to the school, we'll pick them up from the school and drop them back to the school. So they can't yeah. come for us, to us for two hours a day instead of school. Yeah. So we, yeah. because we don't want to do that. Because no. what happens when when adults learn to read and write, they, they start to value learning. And that's what we're trying to get to. Reading and yeah. writing is obviously the, out, one, the, the primary outcome. But what we're actually trying to do is take communities from being communities of low literacy, characteristically, to communities of value learning. So in yeah. order to do that, you have to reduce low English literacy to 10 or 20%. That's the tipping point where you go from that to that. Then it becomes yeah. a sustainable thing. So yeah. an example of that is that Cuba in 1961, they were 50% illiterate. Mm. In one year, they went from that to 100% literate and they're still the most literate country in the world today. Wow. So there's, there's a sustainable, you know, bit of longitudinal research <laughs> that yeah, people yeah. could look at. Yeah, yeah. I've always said to people, if you want to look at a longitudinal study, have a look at that. Yeah, have a look at Cuba. I'm sure yeah, there is yeah. some some research and data coming out of there. Mm. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah. So yeah. that's what that's what we're focused on is we're actually focused on changing that characteristic. So, and while a lot of people individually become literate, the real uh, you know goal for us is to get to that tipping point. In yeah. each community, yeah. and unfortunately, that's where the money's run out. So government will fund it and say, "Yep, go and do that." And yeah, get, and then we'll get funded for three intakes. But most communities are probably going to require six or seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah sustained effort over time. Yeah, yeah, you can't fix this problem. It's taken us a couple of hundred years to get to this place. It's yeah, not, we're not going to turn fixed it overnight. In no. year. Yeah. Yeah, and we're too yeah. big. Cuba's a little place. You can do it in a year. You can't do that. that. That's what I was going to say. I mean, rural mm. criminology 101, it's been, I mean, I come from Canada, which is equally massive, just a bit colder, um, but that the tyranny of distance, as, as it's called, uh, you know, that, 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 that it imposes on the delivery of these types of things or crime prevention, in my case, it's, it does make Australia uh, very unique, not only historically, but geographically in trying to address these problems. 
Yeah, it really, it really does. I mean, numerically, we're very small. We're tiny, but but yeah, but but land mass, but that makes it even harder. You spread out yeah, a small yeah. population, That's particularly right. I mean, indigenous populations yeah. um, in very very mm-hmm. rural, remote areas in Canada. A lot of flying communities that don't even have access to clean drinking water. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the same here, you know, like if you go to the far west of New South Wales, you've got little communities where there's, you know, there's one community with 60 people in it. There's another community that's got about 120 people in it. Yeah. Um, you go to some of the bigger, more remote communities in Central Australia, where well, you might have three or 400 people living in there. And, and yeah. it can be less than that. So the townships have got a lot, but the, the smaller communities don't. So it makes yeah. it extremely difficult to roll out a national campaign in one yeah. go. Um, yeah. So, and the cost of it is fairly significant, you know. So, so, but in order to do it, you know, people always talk to me about the cost of doing something. I'd prefer to have the conversation about the cost of doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, what's the cost of, of nothing, particularly yeah. when it comes to literacy, which is the foundation of, of mm. almost any and every daily interaction and behaviour. Exactly. It's... it's um, you know, I say to people, we can talk about closing the gap all your life, but if you can't yeah. read, like you don't even realise there is gap. Yeah, yeah, you haven't even Absolutely. started. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I got about two hundred questions, but uh, <laughs> I think I think it's time to bring Jenny in. Um, yeah. You did mention the uh, crime aspect of it, and I ju- I know Jenny has done some research in this area. Jenny, can you speak to that a little bit? Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Um, so UNE criminology team did some research back in 2016 on the Yes I Can campaign. Um, sorry, Jack, is it still called the Yes I Can campaign? Yeah, it is. Yeah, literacy for life. Yeah, so, literacy yeah. for life. But it's still Yes I Can or Yes Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks. Um, so um, we were brought in to look at how um, the campaign was helping. Um, local Indigenous people with the criminal justice system interactions and to determine whether there was any reduction in criminal Mm. justice interactions. Sorry. Um, So there was a lot of positive feedback within the community. So we didn't speak to any of the the actual um, people going through the campaign at all, but we did speak to a lot of criminal justice practitioners working in the area, service providers, and they were all very, very positive about the program, sorry, the campaign. And um, at that time in 2016, one of the strategies of the campaign, and Jack might correct me if this has changed, was to actually have um, practitioners from the criminal justice system come in and provide advice to um, the participants and offer sessions so they could bring in um, a fine notice that they might have had. And mm. the practitioners could work with them at that particular session or one-on-one at a later date to try and um, help them understand what that meant and what their options were for seeking um, help from these services. So what um, what our report found was that there were, in general, negative interactions with the criminal justice system and the, the Literacy for Life campaign actually assisted that because in the areas we were looking at, Burke and Angonia, uh, but in particular Burke, <clears throat> the police officers were going along to the campaign and were trying to build relationships with mm. participants and they were trying to build community relationships so that 
the negative interactions um, became a little less negative in the future. Um, but a lot of the themes that came out were that Indigenous local people were becoming engaged with the criminal justice system because they lacked that literacy um, that most people take for granted. So mm. because they didn't have the literacy skills, they couldn't get their driver's licence, which meant, um, especially in Angonia and Burke, where it's a bit more isolated, and they had to drive to access medical help, um, and as Jax was saying, sorry business, there's yeah. not that public transport um, system, and so people would need to drive, and because they couldn't get their licence, they would be then driving without a licence, they would then come into the attention of the criminal justice system, and it would just yeah. escalate from there. So they'd appear in court, they wouldn't understand the court process, um, no one was checking with them and there's, there's literature around Australia around this that no one was checking with them to make sure they actually understood the process yeah. um, what they were signing what the conditions of their bail were and everything else so it just became this um, a cycle where as soon as they came into contact with the criminal justice system they just um, kept getting into further and further conflict with the criminal justice mm. system because no one was bothering to check whether or not they could understand so there was a lot of positive feedback about the campaign because you had the service providers bringing all of this to the attention of the criminal justice practitioners, the police were yeah. understanding it more, the courts were understanding it more. Um, some of the magistrates were, um, instead of sending people to prison, were saying, okay, it's a condition, well, sorry, a recommendation that you actually go and um, attend the campaign to try and get your literacy levels back up. Mm. that the cycle would then become broken yeah um, so there was a lot of positive feedback from it and um, anecdotally um, it was improving relationships with the criminal justice system yeah it's fascinating there's uh, so many kind of rural criminological themes in there as well just a bit of a kind of side note that I know from you know research back in Canada, particularly around bail and um, uh, the capacity for sureties and these types of things, that there's a number of case studies drawing on Indigenous peoples, Indigenous male youth. And, you know, their first offence would be something like that, driving without a licence because they, they didn't have the services within the, the bounds of the remote community, no access. But from there, the spiral of criminal justice interaction to the point where uh, a 12-year-old is now 34 and been in jail for mm. 20 of those years for no major offenses. Nothing is a violent offense, a sexual offense, anything of that nature. They're all offenses against the administration of justice that have just piled on, piled on, piled on, piled. How this interacts with bail is that judges and crowns, when they're making their decisions, tends to then lump various conditions on these individuals which they of course are set up to fail and very likely to break so this cycle is uh, very familiar I guess the world over and for similar historical uh, uh, reasons um, one thing I want to draw out a little bit being the podcast of the Center for Rural Criminology which I think we've talked about a lot but not explicitly is that role of remoteness and morality can you speak to that first Jack in the context of this literacy campaign and then maybe Jenny you, you brought up a few points there but a little bit in the in the criminological criminal justice aspect of it, access to justice and these types of things. Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> part of what we do is we work. We we certainly partner up with you know New South Wales Legal Aid, um, the Aboriginal Legal Services in everything we do. 
we partner up with, in every community, we partner up with the health service um, in that community. Um, so we actually begin to engage, you know, our students in a very different way with those systems. Um, in Burke, you know, um, it was great out there. You know, the area commander was a guy by the name of Greg Moore. Um, Greg got right into it straight away and he just said, look, this, he actually wrote a testimonial for the Lucas and Life Foundation. He, he came and offered it up. He said, Jack, I just want to write a testimonial. He said, this has made such a difference in yeah. this community. And, and some of the, particularly the young men that were, were certainly, you know, looking to get sent away. Um, yeah. One of them, uh, he came in one day and said, I can't believe this young bloke. He's turned around. He's now on our police advisory committee. He's on mm -hmm. this. Thing. And, and he said, Jack, we thought he'd be just going away. It was just a matter of time when, when he went yeah. away. Yeah. I think the other thing that we tried to do in some communities was get driving lessons while we were there. Um, yeah, okay. And that didn't always work out. And the reason I say driving lessons, because that, that it's not having a licence is 80% of Aboriginal people that go to court in country towns are going because they haven't got a licence. Wow. Right? So, so they're traffic offences. Yeah. So 80% go because of traffic offences. But 90% of that 80% is because they haven't got a licence. Mm. So reading and writing at a basic level hits that issue on the head straight away. Um, yeah. And as you were saying before, you know, like, am I forced to drive it? Having a license doesn't doesn't really matter much if you've got a child who's sick and you've got to get them to town. If you take a place no. up in Virginia, which is just out of Burke, there's no yeah. medical facilities at all. So the last thing I'd be thinking of if one of my children was sick is whether I had a license or not, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be off. And, and, and you just suffer the consequences. And they do. Um, that's, that's what happens, you know. So... So, again, I just come back to this whole literacy component. It affects every aspect of your life in a very positive way. Yeah. And, and, and I know, you know, criminology is a big thing. You know, crime is a thing that causes heartache for a lot of people. Um, the person committing the crime is not always the most affected person. And, yeah. and neither is the victim in many mm -hmm. cases, but it'll be the family that's left behind, you know, yeah. um, to try and fend for themselves while, while the husband or the wife is away. Yeah. And, the, and the critical component for us, in my view, is that if there's a tool out there that actually positively affects every aspect of your life, including health, your opportunities for employment, your engagement with the criminal justice system, that'd be the thing I'd want to be funding. That'd be yeah. the thing that I'd want to be working on and to get, so that we can get, and this is what we've asked the federal government for. We said, look, give us $20 million over five years. Yeah. Give us a chance to upscale the campaign so that you can get very real numbers in terms of your research. You know, so we can do a data linkage research program over a number of years with very much increased numbers so that you mm. get a very good sample. Not, not from just Western New South Wales, but from across Australia. After that five years, that would tell you then whether you wanted to fund this, fully fund this to, to hit the problem on the head. Yeah. Now, we estimated the cost of this um, probably five years ago. We thought it would take about 12 years to do. 
and at a cost of about $1.13 billion. Now that's yeah. nothing. That, that's nothing in the scheme of things in terms of expenditure that yeah. goes out the door. But the money that that, that expenditure would save in other areas mm. like incarceration, like people's health improving, like people you know, getting employment and other things or contributing in, in many other ways to society, the savings yeah. are enormous. They'd be probably tenfold. So that's, that's the thing for me. I just don't get why we don't try that, give that a shot and see where it leads. Yeah. We might, yeah. Get, to, we might get to five years and they might say, well, it didn't work. It didn't work mm. consistently across the board over that time. So then, then you've got to go back to the drawing board. But at yeah. the moment, we've got something that's working at, at five times the rate of anything else in the same space. Yeah. Sounds to me like a lot of kind of short-sightedness and, and you know, the preference for Band-Aid solutions over, over looking ahead. I mean, you talked about the savings in the end in terms of, I mean, we know how much incarceration costs. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And um, if you can kind of capture that in an understanding, but the problem with a lot of these types of policy areas is it requires vision and commitment over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like it's a, it's it's a, it's should be something that is shameful nationally and should have um, I guess more concerted funding and effort to address. Yeah, it does, and, and we need to acknowledge that that to take somebody from being below level one literacy to say level two or three literate is around one hundred and sixty hours of learning. 160 hours face to face. So yeah. it's no good trying to walk away from that and say, well, we'll do that for $5,000 a student. It's not yeah, going to yeah. work. What it's yeah. going to cost is around sixteen dollars to $20,000 per person. Per but person, again, yes. the savings on that are enormous. And the reason, you know, if, you, if you're graduating people at a rate of 5%, and I want to be really clear, I'm not having any duct tape or any of the private providers. Yeah. But because they're, they're, they're locked into level one, so that's where they start. Yeah. If people are pre-level one, they can't do it. It's just too hard. So you end up with this enormous rate of people withdrawing from, from the course itself. The campaign model itself is a big part of making this work because you're not going out, enrolling students, bringing them in and saying, okay, here it is. We'll see you at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. We'll see you yeah. at 9 o'clock next month. We go around. Local mob go around and pick their own mob up and say, Come yeah. On. Going Let's to go. class, yeah. it's a campaign, and that's the yeah. difference because it's very hard when you're when you're sitting at home and you see that there's no real prospects of employment in your town, particularly in some mm. of those small communities. It's very hard to incentivise people by saying, "Well, if you do this, you'll get a job," and they're going to go, "Well, hang on, where?" You know, yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly. So that's, not, that's, yeah. that's not the incentive, you know. So yeah. we need to get move away from that and just honour yeah. that human right, the people's right, just to learn. You know, yeah. that's the thing that we need to be focusing on. And, and for me, that that's the be all and end all of it. You know? Yeah, but it seems to me that's where that cultural element comes into, and particularly those three stages. It sounds like that initial stage that you talked about. What did you call it? Socialization, was it? Yeah, socialisation and mobilisation. Yeah. Seems so, so yeah. important and, and something, for instance, that TAFE, for instance, or one of those providers would require self-motivation and self-enrolment and self-mobilisation, whereas this program seems to kind of take that from a community-centred approach. Yeah, absolutely. And when we, 
when we bring students in, we get an expression of interest first. So we don't actually ask them to enroll. We get an expression of interest. And then when they come along to classes, we don't actually enroll anyone until they've completed three weeks. Okay. If they can, so we give them the, the very real right to say, look, this is not for me. But, yeah. Right. So then they don't get branded a dropout. They don't, you know, get labeled with all these. Yeah. Put on yeah. That, yeah. that have changed direction or changed their mind or just say, well, it's not really for me. So, but people that come and stay for three weeks are far more likely to complete the course so, mm. or complete the, the classes and, and yeah. so on. Yeah, they turn up for three weeks. They, yeah. So we're aiming at them about their right, you know, and about it, it actually being an opportunity for them to come and sample something. If you mm. don't like it, that's fine. You can, you can yeah. change direction. Maybe you want to come back next year and give it a go. But, yeah, you know, and and that that's the thing because the pressure on people to to come uh, again it, it it's it's no different than the shame. Yeah, being you know having low literacy, the pressure on someone that's the last thing someone trying to learn to read and write. You know, I, yeah. I can't begin to imagine how people feel because I can read and write, and, yeah. and I could. Yeah. But, I couldn't imagine the pressure that's on them, you know, and then someone saying, yeah, and you've got to attend 80% of the time and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. <laughs> Hang on, I mean, I'm struggling yeah. to get here. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, no. And speaking of that same thing, I mean, I did uh, a lot of international travel. Um, one thing I did is my master's in Spain, and it was 25 students from all over the country, from Sierra Leone to Italy to Canada. And I remember um, it was my first time really um, – in a multilingual environment. Now, of course, everything's delivered in English. I'm the only one out of 25 who can only speak one language, shamefully being from Canada, no French. And the shame for many of them for not being perfectly fluent in English or being able to write. Uh, and then I'm sitting here feeling like actually an idiot because they can speak three or four languages, but they were the ones who actually felt the shame. And I just remember that really, that really struck me as uh, you know, a clear case of kind of ethnocentrism in the sense of uh, the cultural priority there being English, everything being delivered in English and everything being catered to me. Yet these people were fascinating in the amount of languages that they could speak, but still felt some, still felt inferior, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah. it was just, uh, yeah, an eye-opening uh, moment for me. But um, I'm also a bit curious, and I think the listeners would be as well. You talk about level one literacy. Can you explain kind of uh, give a general sense of what that would be or what, what would what would below level one be? Okay, so so what you've got is the Australian Core Skills Framework, which is certificates level one, two, three, and four. So that, that's where you begin. So when you go into, say, a TAFE and you enrol um, in a literacy class, a literacy and numeracy class, you're coming in at what they used to call basic literacy and numeracy. So you're coming in at the very basic level. Pre-level one, are people, some of those people don't know how to hold a pen or a pencil yet. Yeah. Uh, some people can only identify five or six letters of the alphabet at that wow. point. Right. So, to, to, so people that come in to, to basic literacy and numeracy, they know the alphabet and what it looks like. They know what letters are. They just can't string them together in words, sentences, and paragraphs. With this other mob, they don't actually know all the letters. Um, they really struggle, and they've got a whole range of other issues, as we've discovered on the way through. Um, 
you know, the sort of wraparound support that I talked about earlier in terms of legal advice, um, but more around the health health advice. Um, yeah. We, we, we bring... We bring the people to the class because people won't go to the medical service. So we'll we'll bring people, the health people to the class and do a hearing test. Um, and it was amazing in one place. We were wondering why people were slower than a different another town on the uptake. And then we mm. figured out about three quarters of them had hearing problems. So wow. you know, so and then no one tells you they can't see, you know. Um, I'm the most, most vain person on the planet. You know, you'll never catch me in public with a pair of glasses. On. But yeah, <laughs> but the you know, and so you know, when you a lot of people won't tell you, oh, I can't actually see it. You know, yeah. so we we actually encourage people, and we bring someone in to do eye tests as well. You know, just wow. yeah. eye they get an eye test. You might as well get yours test. And so it's all in that. You know, um, and they're the sorts of things that. That you need to do because, but but in answer to your question, that's the difference. That that's yeah. the difference. You've got that basic level where people can, you know, identify numbers. They can, you know, probably add a few numbers up and pull a few things together. Not not nothing too complicated. But yeah. people that are below that, a lot of people can count because they've learned to count their their money. But there's still a lot of people who can't. Um, yeah, and that's in yeah. my hometown of Brewarna. You know, um, yeah. Where, where you know, one guy is fifty six, and it was the first time he actually knew how to count the change when he got it back. Yeah. Wow. Before that, it was just a, it was an honour system that the shopkeeper was giving him the right change, and he probably was. Yeah. He, he was just. He was. Yeah. Uh, he was too frightened to, to go and use an ATM. Um, he was terrified, and even yeah. when we filmed him doing it in. And in my own words, it took about eight attempts. Yeah. Because every time I set it up to go and do it, he just didn't turn up. He's too shame. He's wow. Too, so yeah. stuff to go his name. So his mate came with him and assisted him with it. So all of that sort of stuff is where you're pre-level one. So you've got yeah. all that going on in your life. Um, people that are ready to go into um, level one, well, it's a different show completely. And so there's no, these people just fall through the cracks otherwise. There, there's, there's no attempts to address pre-level one and um, by, by the government or anything like that. I remember years ago when we, when we did the first campaign, the first pilot campaign at Will Kenya, and I was yeah. standing on the riverbank with a friend of mine that was working on this with us, um, you know, who, you know, he helped set up the first campaign and, and worked alongside us for many years. Um, who also worked up at, at UNE and was standing yeah. on the riverbank on the banks of Darling River, and he said, "Jack, do you really want to be doing this for the next ten years of your life?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I said, "I said, well, if we don't do it, who's actually going to care about this group of people? Because yeah. when you look at it." You know, and I use I often use the term whereas a lot of these people are just surplus to the population. Yeah. They're surplus yeah. to the needs of a community. So no one really cares because yeah. their, their life is not going to affect adversely or positively their life. So so they almost they're treated like a yeah, you know, like a surplus population where it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, just left left. Yeah. yeah. But it matters to me, and it should matter to all of us that 
that yeah. every every person in Australia, black or white, you know, yeah, or whatever, can read and write. That that that's one of the most basic and most fundamental human rights of all is the right to learn. But yeah. you can only you can only access that right to learn if learning opportunities are resourced to 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 come to you. Yeah, I like the way that, that you framed it there, that that literacy is the foundation, but you're trying to set people up with the the capacity for learning. Um, yeah. It's a it's a longer term uh, goal. If you go to other parts of the world where you see different communities, how people really value learning. Yeah. You know, yeah, that and, was it. Sorry, valuing learning. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the critical thing. And what happens is when you when you get low literacy down to 10% in your community, it actually changes that characteristic of a low literate community to a community that values learning. Yeah. That's the tipping yeah. point. So that's what we've got to try to get to um, in our communities. But, but that shouldn't detract from other people of other races in our communities that can't read and write either. We should be targeting everybody. This, yeah. yeah. And, and several people have said, yeah, could this, could this model work with anyone else? I said, well, it's worked with 10 million people around the world. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so true. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's a Cuban initiative, as you said, initially, and, and you guys have adapted it to the, to the Australian environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jenny, I'm going to bother you one last time just to talk a little bit about... Um, I guess the rural criminological elements. Did you guys identify any any um, of these in your research in terms of the impact of rurality in on these issues, particularly with criminal justice interaction? Yeah, um, absolutely. As I um, said, and Jack mentioned, um, the driving was a huge issue because um, it was the only way that people could move around, and therefore they came in contact with the criminal justice system. Um, it also wasn't just driving unlicensed it was um often driving unregistered cars yeah again, because they they didn't understand um the notes they were getting in the mail they then didn't follow through um but there were also issues with the service providers themselves so um you have in rural in a, a lot of rural remote areas there's a high turnover of service providers there are people yeah. coming from the city doing short-term um time in an area and so there's that lack of understanding when people first come in about what life is really like and and not understanding that there there aren't opportunities for public transport and that there are limited resources and everything else mm. and so that's i think the great thing about the campaign like i said they they brought the service providers in and so they were able to also understand what was happening at that local level and they were all then able to change how they offered their services and what level of services they offered um you know bringing it scaling it back i guess and starting from the beginning and really helping the participants um in terms of not necessarily rural but um, a lot of different aspects of their life were also bringing them into contact with the criminal justice system. So um, for people who were renting, 
Um, mm. A lot of them didn't understand when they got uh, letters saying your rent has been increased. Yeah. So they were behind in their rent. And then, of course, they got in trouble and referred to the criminal justice system via that aspect. So there are a lot of um, elements going into it. And as Jack said, literacy is so important. And um, as we know from the research, we have very high levels of illiteracy in the criminal justice system across Australia. Mm. And, uh, improving it is going to help that. But the rural element really does add another element because there is that issue of transport and limited services. We just yeah. don't have the same services that we do and the high turnover of services. So that community building um, is often more difficult. Um, and that's why, as Jack said, the, the local <clears throat> area commander of the Darling River, when he came in, things really seemed to um, turn around for Burke. Wow. Um... Is there much in the way, aside from the work that you guys uh, and the research you guys conducted of um, looking at literacy and crime reduction or, or uh, minimizing criminal justice interaction, um, not necessarily just on evaluation of this particular campaign, but generally, or is that also a bit of a, a, a gap in the literature? Um, there's been a lot of um, research done on the impacts of illiteracy, particularly in Indigenous communities, and their interaction with criminal justice systems. There's some fantastic research, yeah. uh, particularly linguistic research, looking at how um, court cases are actually going, like are actually occurring because you've got someone on um, being called to testify or, you know, provide testimony about why they've done something and you can see that they they don't understand what they're being asked yeah and they're being asked to agree to conditions that they don't understand and yeah asked. yeah they're signing legal documents that they've yeah yep so there's a lot of research around those aspects um there isn't as much research around um the literacy campaigns that um jack and others are involved in it's a growing area yeah yeah, it sounds like in terms of cost savings, though, the, the, the evidence base is there and quite strong. Yeah, it is. And, and people just need to grip, get a grip on anecdotal evidence being real evidence. You know, sometimes yeah. people talk about anecdotal evidence like, well, there's real evidence and then you've got this anecdotal evidence. <laughs> so from where we come from as Aboriginal, everything to us was anecdotal evidence. It was applied science that we live by and set our lives by for thousands and thousands of years so it was all anecdotal to some, some extent but yeah. just to um something i would like to say before we do have to wind up is that when they did the uh royal commission into aboriginal deaths in custody yeah what that found was that 92 percent of aboriginal people that were incarcerated had low literacy so that statistic tells you alone that if you flip that it would be an enormous outcome yeah you know in in terms of incarceration so so everything ultimately will come back to people's capacity to read and write um, mm. because that's where your opportunities are if you can't read and write all these opportunities that people say exist out there and Aboriginal people get labeled that and they say what's wrong with them? they've got all these opportunities yeah they become absolute burdens if you can't read and write yeah 
Yeah, so that, that's the issue. They're the things we've got to address. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we're coming up to about an hour here and I could probably talk for another hour, but I won't keep you too much longer. Is there anything that, that you'd like to touch on, either Jenny or Jack, um, that would be good for the listeners to know or to hear about this program? Maybe if we could end on a more of a positive note. Yeah. For me, it's the best thing I've ever worked on um, in my entire life. And watching that light come on when somebody finally, after all that hard work of 11 weeks and then another 12 weeks of post-literacy, watching that light come on for someone is the most amazing thing. Every graduation in every town has been extremely emotional, you know, with people crying when, when their people are graduating because they've known these people all their life. They know the journey they've been on and they know how hard it yeah. was. And the thought I had a number of years ago when I was at one of those graduations, I just thought the best, someone always says, you know, what, what's the best thing we can do for Aboriginal people? What I say is this, I honestly think that the best possible gift any of us could give an Aboriginal child is a literate mother. Yeah. Because, because globally, where, where children have literate mothers, it's almost 100% of those children can read and write. Yeah. Now, that's, that's the fact of it. If they, it's great if you could give them two literate parents, but a literate mum alone can actually mm. turn the dial on reading and writing. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of what you're saying is just sh shifting that needle, you know, and, and pushing. Like you talked about the 10% and how massive an impact it is if you can get to that point you know if you could have a literate mother if you can get to 10 percent in the community that the flow on effects the snowballing effects are just are just uh, uh massive yeah they really are they really are and and you know like everyone that comes i've seen corporate leaders come to a graduation and cry at graduation you know? yeah I've never seen anything as emotional as that in yeah. our lives that was places like bogabilla and tumala and out of Burke and Rewarana, you know, people said that this is just unbelievable, the emotion in, in this, you know. Like yeah. We all cry when someone gets a master's degree or a PhD and you, your children give all those. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. I imagine this is a greater feat than a, than a PhD. It is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, people people get the gravity of, of what people have achieved. Yeah. Jenny, any closing words? Um, just to follow on from Jack, I mean, there was, um, again, anecdotal, but it was very powerful um, evidence that the the adults who were participating in the the campaign, there were generational impacts happening. So they were talking about how, because the adults were in the campaign, it was a, a knock-on positive effect for the, the local school because mm. they were actually encouraging their children or their grandchildren who are at school to actually step up to at school and to try and, you know, um, to really work at it. And they were able mm. to help with their homework. And so there was that really positive vibe about how this could be a generational game changer because, as Jack said, once, once one member of the family um, can read and help others, it can just have a knockdown effect. And it was really, it was amazing. Yeah, sounds like it comes back to that valuing learning, you know, and you just spoke there, if they can see the parents giving it a go and encouraging them at school and valuing learning together through homework and those types of things. 
Um, all right. Well, thanks very much. Is there any, have I missed anything or is everyone, everyone satisfied? Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Can you tell me that website again, one more time, Jack? Yeah, it's lflf.org.au. Perfect. So for all our listeners and the documentary is called In My Own Words. Yes, it is. Yeah. And just look it up. It's um, SBS, did it? Um, SBS. All right. Well, I got my watching sorted for tonight and I'm sure uh, people will be very interested to kind of uh, see a visual representation of some of the things we spoke about today. So thank you very much for taking this time. I greatly appreciate it. And I wish you the, the greatest success in um, pushing this campaign further. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jack. Right. See ya. Thanks, Jack. All right.